Acts chapter 21, verse 17. This is God's word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and, offering, uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, right now we come under your holy word, your word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit that is without error, that was given to us to show uh, all things we need pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, would you make wise unto salvation today through your word? Would you convict us and would you convict us of sin and of righteousness would you show us where we need to turn away from sin, uh, where we need to uh, turn towards you? God, would you show us even areas that aren't sin, but you're calling us to lay them down or to pick them up? God, we need to hear from you. So give us great wisdom. And God, help me to teach your word this morning. I need your help. I, want, I, I come to the end of my own wisdom and knowledge quickly. So I ask for your Holy Spirit to be able to make this effective, to be able to uh, encourage the saints for the work of the ministry to equip them. Our eyes are on you. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we just saw what Leviticus is all about, that it's all about how God can live with sinful people in peace. And we saw that God instituted shadows and signs in the Old Testament. So he gave us shadows, which were things that foreshadowed something to come. So like the sacrificial system was a shadow of what Christ would one day do for his people. That the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away the sins of the people, but that one day there would be a sacrifice that would truly atone, cover absorb the wrath of God for his people. And we have signs. We have signs of the covenant. So like the sign of circumcision, something given to us to symbolize God's covenant promises to us. And all of these, all of these in the Old Testament pointed to the truth of what God would one day do, the way he himself would make a way to dwell with sinful people in peace. 
how would he do that? So where we find ourselves today in the story of Acts is Paul is returning to Jerusalem. The last time we saw Paul in the city of Jerusalem, uh, the last time Acts gives significant time to that in the text was Acts chapter 15. And the Jerusalem council was going on. And they had to figure out the following thing. God's good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, it's going out to all people, not just the Jews. It's going out to everyone. Now, Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It doesn't abolish the Old Testament. It fulfills it. So in many ways, it's the fulfillment of Judaism. So there is therefore going to be a certain amount of overlap with a Jewish person's life and their new life in Christ. And so they're having to figure out some things. So it wasn't necessarily wrong at all for a Jew to be circumcised. But we have to ask the question, if let's say a Gentile becomes a Christian, like a Greek person, does that entail that they need to become Jewish? Do they need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian? And the council decided, no, a Gentile doesn't have to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws and rituals to become a Christian. You don't have to become Jewish first to become Christian. And this is because to be a Christian is not primarily about something you do for God. It's not, it's not primarily about this is the life I live and so I am a Christian. It is not, I'm a good person, therefore I'm a Christian. To be a Christian is first of all to have heard the incredible announcement, the victory news that Jesus Christ died for sinners in their place, He rose from the dead and now he offers new life to all who would turn away from whatever they've been trusting in and trust totally in him. That is what it is to be a Christian. To know I am a sinner, God has done something about it, I know what he's done and I just trust in that. It's not I trust in what I have done. So the Jerusalem council gave this decision from Acts 15 verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That it is the grace of God that saves us, not a work of the law. Now, James and Paul are reuniting after this, uh, for the first time in Jerusalem that Acts dedicates time to. uh, They're reuniting, and Paul has been a missionary for the past chapters to non-Jews, to Gentiles. While James has stayed in Jerusalem, and apparently James has risen to a certain level of prominence as an elder in the church of Jerusalem. And so they're gathering together, and this is the story of the conversation they have in a situation that arises. So we're going to look at the story under three headings. We're going to look at uh, salvation, that is, what the gospel is. We're going to look at submission, what the gospel produces in us. And we're going to look at sentness. The idea of being all things for all people, all for the sake of the gospel. So the first thing we're going to cover is salvation. Acts 21 verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. 
So Paul and James, they get together and all the other elders are present there too. And Paul starts out by just recounting to James the amazing things that God has done while he's been on mission to the Gentiles. He just starts telling him unbelievable stories of, man, I was in Corinth and you're not gonna believe the people that got saved. I was in Thessalonica and, and God did something phenomenal. And he just goes one by one telling all the things of, uh, of what God had done. And James, he just starts rejoicing. And all the elders too, they just start glorifying God. Now we need to, we need to remember, these are men who would normally, the Jews, they didn't have favorable feelings towards the Gentiles right? They, they wanted to stay away. They want to be separatists. They wanted them to have their communities. We can have ours. But they hear this news and they start rejoicing in God. And then James, he returns, uh, he turns to Paul and he like just has to start one-upping him. He's like, you're not going to believe how many Jews, thousands of Jews have been saved in the city of Jerusalem. The story begins with great rejoicing and praising God. And I, I want to draw something out from this uh, because we can hear this from the text and how oh, cool it's some, the Apostle Paul and Apostle J- and Elder of Jerusalem, James, are just rejoicing and glorifying God. That's really great for them, but my life's kind of messy and hard. Uh, Paul had some really, really messy ministerial circumstances. Like, like in Corinth, people are getting drunk off of communion wine. And, and, and in different cities, Paul would leave and then people would come in to preach the gospel and they would preach the gospel, but their, their ambition and their intent was to win people away from Paul to say, oh, I'm actually pretty good, right? And Paul, he left you guys. I'm pretty, to, to preach out of envy and rivalry. We have, we have in Corinth just just sexual sin all amongst the church. Still of a kind that we don't even really have to have happening too often today. There were some crazy things. There were sufferings and persecutions happening. Not everything was perfect, but they got together and they encouraged one another in what God was doing. And it encouraged their souls. They rejoiced with one another. And friends, if you don't know the joy of meeting together with a friend, in, in talking about the good things that God is doing in your life or in the lives of people around you, man, you're missing out. And not, not, not to say this is just positive thinking, just look at this good thing. No, but to seriously rejoice because God is active in your life and to fix your eyes on the things that God is doing. To think about what is peaceable and honorable and pure and good, whatever is lovely, man, that's encouraging to our hearts. If you don't know the joy of that, you're missing out. But we need to ask a more basic question. We need not just to say, go and rejoice, uh, end of sermon. Why are Paul and James able to rejoice with each other? Why are they able to find joy in what God's doing in one another's ministry? Simply because the gospel is going forth. Because their greatest love in the universe is a shared love. Because the good news of what Jesus has done, it, it crosses racial and ethnic and income in every kind of line you could possibly draw in the universe. 
The gospel love that they share with one another, it transcends everything else. And so they hear that God is doing things by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're like, oh, oh, that is my life. That is joy for my soul. But what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because we can throw out words. We can use shorthand and just completely miss each other. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that though we have rebelled against our creator, we have said, we said, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. We, we have worshiped creation and ignored the creator. We have enjoyed his good gifts and not given him glory. We have turned our back on the one who created us and ignored what he has said about how to live and how to find life and flourishing. Though we have rebelled against our creator, Jesus Christ left his eternal throne out of love for you to die for your sins, your real sins, the things that you say, I know God can forgive me of everything, but I need to figure this one out. He died for every single one of your sins. He took the wrath of God that you deserved, and best of all, He rose from the dead, showing that he was successful, that he did it, that he accomplished something. Not that here, church, gather around while we discuss some good advice about 10 steps you can do, and maybe God will start to love you, but God has loved you, and he has shown his love for you, and that he sent Jesus Christ for you, and that Jesus today lives and calls all men and women unto himself to turn away from whatever they've been trusting in and come to him and find life. Paul succinctly captures the gospel in 1 Timothy uh, 1.15. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He didn't come to give religious people a boost. He didn't come to raise someone's self-esteem. He came to save sinners out of the grave. He says again in the book of Titus like this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This means that you, throwing yourself, mucked up, dirty, mired in sin as you are, upon Jesus Christ and what he did, you are justified in a moment as you just throw yourself as as he is my only hope in life and in death. When you throw yourself upon him like that, You are justified in an instant, made clean, 
holy and pure. It is to say that there is not more sin in you than there is grace in Jesus Christ. And so come to him, collapse into the arms of the Savior and you will be clean because God has done something about sin. God has made salvation available. So Paul and James, they've experienced this and they can't get over it. They're like, I know this wasn't just how I became a Christian. I know I don't need to check out at this point because I already heard the salvation message. No, this was their continual hope that as they continue to follow Jesus, they stand firm in what they had believed, that they stand firm in the gospel. Not now that I have been saved, I've been cleaned up, so I better, I better make sure that I keep myself saved. No, that I trust in what God has done and what Jesus has done continues to only ever be my hope. And so they rejoice in the saving power of Jesus, all the things that God himself has done. But there is, in the midst of it, something that needs to be discussed. And so James turns to Paul perhaps anxiously. And he says, but we have a situation. So let's talk about this situation. James says, they, which is the Jews in Jerusalem, are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. Okay, so here's what's going on. The Jews have been spreading rumors. Uh, Some of the Jews in Jerusalem have been spreading rumors about Paul that he said, you should forsake Moses. You should not have your children circumcised anymore and you don't need to follow the Jewish ceremonial customs. Now, did Paul ever say that? Uh, Rhetorical, no, I guess. Uh, No, Paul never said that. He only said Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. But James, James turns them, and with a lot of gall, he looks at his friend, and he says, Paul, do therefore what we tell you. Here's the situation. Here's what you need to do. Now, this rubs us, particularly as Americans, the wrong way. When I stand up here and I, I say something like, you must, dot, dot, dot. Some of us start to twitch a little bit. Mm, I don't know. I, I'm kind of free in Christ. I have my liberty. I have my bill of rights. I, I, you can't, who are you to tell me what I must do? There's grace for what I must do. We, especially in this country, man, when someone tells you, you need to do this right now, that's hard for us. He turns to them and he says, do what I tell you. The elders around him says, do what we tell you, Paul. Now, how Paul responds to this situation is going to tell us everything about what he believes and how the gospel affects his life. Because Paul, he's been freed from obligation to, uh, to f- keeping the Jewish customs 
through Christ fulfilling the law on his behalf. He's now under what he, what he calls in 1 Corinthians 9, the law of Christ, which is to say the moral imperatives of scripture. The things like the Ten Commandments and the moral law that God has given us that does not change. But he doesn't, he doesn't have to keep the Jewish customs. He's free to keep the Sabbath on any day. It doesn't have to be on a Saturday. He's free, uh, he's free to circumcise somebody or to not have somebody circumcised. He, the old customs of the law are no longer binding on him. But what the gospel has produced in Paul is a spirit of submission. A spirit of submission. So what does Paul do? Having James say to him, do what we tell you. He submits because truly letting the gospel bear down on your soul always produces humility. It always says, okay, I can decrease. Okay, I'm willing to give up some of my rights for the sake of others. And so text goes on. He submits, and James says this. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Okay, so what's going on is, a, is most likely a Nazarite vow, which you can read more about in number six. Paul's already done one of these previously in the book of Acts. Uh, but it was a, a vow that you weren't required to take, but in this vow, a couple of the um, highlights of it were you got you let your hair grow out for a long time. So I don't know, Bo might might be under I don't know, uh, but you let it grow out for a long time and then you cut it and then you cut it once the vow is uh, over. They also abstain from certain foods and drinks. Uh, but these men have been keeping this Nazarite vow, and you make a you make an ex- an offering, which is a decent amount of money uh, once your vow is up. So that's what's going on. He says that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then the temple giving the notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each, uh, for each one of them. So Paul takes part in the, in the purification service and he pays the expenses of these other men. He, he submits himself to something he doesn't have to do and pays a cost that he didn't have to pay because the gospel has produced in him a humility, a humility that's willing to give up some of his rights. And James also, when he talks about the four things uh, that they say that the... Um, the Jews should, or the Gentiles should do, of abstaining from food sacrificed to idols, blood, things that are strangled, and sexual immorality. What he's, what he's saying there is reiterating what happened in Acts 15. That Gentiles don't need to follow the Jewish customs, but this is what they should abstain from because these things would be sin. The freedom in Christ that Paul has, has provided, has provided to him an ability to lay down his rights. And so it's that humility that drives us as a people to say, I'm going to be, I will do whatever it takes to be all things for all people, all for the sake of the gospel. 
salvation leads to a spirit of submission that then leads us to be sent out. That the end goal isn't ourselves or a group of three of us getting together for coffee once a week, but sent out to the rest of the world. And this story is essentially 1 Corinthians 9 in narrative form. So I'll I'll remind you of what 1 Corinthians 9 says. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, what we see today. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, okay, I have rights that I don't have to follow the Jewish ceremonial customs. But if it, if it, meant, if it meant removing stumbling blocks for Jews, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll give up some of my rights. And you know what? To the, to the Gentiles, yeah, okay, I'll live, I'll live similar to a Gentile. I'll, I'll be like one outside of the law, though I'm still under the law of Christ. That is the moral commands of the New Testament. He says this, because Christ became all things for me, I will submit to the consciences of others in secondary matters so that I don't obscure the gospel in any way. What Christ has done for us compels us to use our freedom in Christ only for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. We talk a lot about what does it mean to be missional? Does it mean to like throw a block party? Does it mean to, uh, to have this served at my event? Does it mean to like hit up the bars at night? Does it mean to go and start a coffee shop? What, what does it mean to be missional? You know what it means to be missional most essentially? To live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. That is what it means to be missional. And so we have to agree on the close-handed issue of the gospel that you are justified in the sight of God by faith alone in what Christ has done alone by grace alone to the glory of God alone. There is no question of that. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do a work to be saved that it is what Christ has, been do- has done that we are joined to by faith, by grace. That is the close hand of the gospel. But in secondary issues... We are guided, we are guided by the principle that we should live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, and so we'll submit to the consciences of others where appropriate. So let's see how this plays out uh, in Paul's life on a secondary issue, and then we'll consider one from contemporary, uh, contemporary time, from our culture that probably comes up. So Paul's example would be circumcision uh, in the New Testament. Uh, I had a bunch of circumcision jokes, but decided to cut them out. So, uh, (laughs) sorry, I didn't know if you were with me. I don't know. Um, In his ministry, in his ministry, Paul, Paul had two followers. He had Timothy, well, he had more than that, but we'll focus on Timothy and Titus. So he had Timothy who he was going to bring on a mission. And Timothy's like, sweet. He's like, and Timothy was not Jewish. And he's like, we're going to the Jews. He's like, okay. He's like, well, that means we're going to circumcise you, 
this time. Uh, so he circumcised Timothy, but not Titus. Not Titus. Even though a, a crowd demanded that Titus be circumcised. So, sorry, Timothy. Uh, God's plans. You're in glory now. Great reward. Uh, but what was going on? Why, why would Paul circumcise one and not the other? Uh, well, let's, let's hear from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. He says this. Paul refuses to circumcise Titus, even when it was demanded by many in the Jerusalem crowd, not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if he acquiesced, if he gave into their request, their demand, he would have been giving the impression that faith in Jesus is not enough for salvation. One has to become a Jew first before one can become a Christian. That would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. So Paul, seeing that, says, you know what? I'm, if, it, if it's going to help in mission to become like the people who we are, who we are evangelizing to, where we are living among, yeah, I'm free to do that. But when the gospel is at stake, when people say, yeah, yeah, we believe that, but you, you also just need to do this thing. And like all good people will do this thing. So just do it. Just have him circumcised. He said, no way. No, I will not give in to that. Now let's consider a modern day uh, example. Alcohol. So alcohol, the scripture would uh, give us some of the following thoughts about alcohol. That wine is a gift from God. There are many warnings about uh, alcohol in scripture about not being addicted to it, about not never giving into drunkenness, taking uh, alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Um, so the overall teaching of the Bible would be this. You are, as a Christian, free to have a drink, and you are free to abstain from drinking. And it takes wisdom to know which one. D.A. Carson uh, say this. To, con- to create a contemporary analogy, if I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, which means they've said, I swear off all liquor, wine, everything, I'll never have a drop of this stuff. I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the port. Or I think I'll have a glass of Beaujolais. Uh, <laughs> Beaujolais. Beaujolais. She's French-Canadian. It's a French wine. With my meal, Paul is flexible and therefore prepared to circumcise Timothy when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake and when a little cultural accommodation will advance the gospel. He is rigidly inflexible and therefore refuses to circumcise Titus when people are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised and become Jews to accept the Jewish Messiah. So, We have been given Christian liberty for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. This is the first two, this is or this is the greatest two commandments playing out missionally, right? The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's figuring out how do these things come down to bear in the people I'm around. So With those two things, we have to say, I will do nothing. We will do nothing as a people to obscure the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for salvation. 
We will do nothing to obscure that. And we will willingly lay down every right we have if it might give us some cultural favor to advance the gospel. But where we actually encounter things is I think in the forms of Christianity we encounter, people abuse Christian liberty like crazy. We abuse it. Some of us in this room imagine God is more pleased with us because we don't drink. And if all the fake Christians out there would stop touching the bottle, maybe we could start to get somewhere. And so we say like, woe is me because, because of the other Christians who drink. Like we could really get somewhere if other people would start doing what I'm telling them to do. But others, others flaunt their freedom. And they say, woe is me if I can't have a glass of wine with my meal. If I can't have a beer at the end of my week that was hard, like, who are you to tell me what I do? I'm fine. I can, I can decide for myself. Woe is me if I, can't, if I can't have my rights to have stuff when I want it. But the logic of the Bible is this. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Oh, the grace of God radically gets our eyes off of ourselves and says, what, how could this serve my, how could this serve my neighbors? How could this serve, how could Christ freeing me up and then giving me freedom, how could that be used to serve other people? So the question is, how can I use my freedom in Christ to best serve both my cultural Christian neighbors and my pagan neighbors? And we say, woe is me, not if Others don't follow my extra biblical moral code, nor woe is me if I can't exercise my freedom however I want and whenever I want, but if I would set up any roadblock to the gospel or if I would, by my life, in any way question the sufficiency of what Christ has done on the cross for those to be saved, we say, I'll give up anything. I'll give up any of my rights. And I will do nothing to question his sufficiency. So let's, let's talk about some other things in our lives uh, that, that our Christian liberty could apply to. Uh, worship songs and styles. Uh, so we in this church, uh, I know we have a lot of different opinions and a lot of different tastes when it comes to music and worship. Uh, me and my friends were texting this week. One of them said, what's your favorite worship album? Uh, and which maybe I need to get some uh, non-Christian friends because that's kind of a funny group text. But we're talking about that. And uh, I, I text mine and mine is like a piano and just acapella scene with 3,000 people. That's like what gets my heart, man. The hymns and and just in Christ alone and all these different things. And I love that stuff. I love that stuff. Uh, but I want my heart to be so informed by the gospel that I say, man, I will belt out whatever song we sing that glorifies Christ. I, if it praises the name of Jesus, I want to sing to him. And you know what? Like, no song other than the Psalms is going to be theologically perfect. And we choose good songs to sing at this church. And so we say, you know what? Style can change, but I have to sing to my God. I have to sing to my God. With media, there are shows with amazing stories. 
that will do violence to my heart and my mind and cause me to sin because of the nudity in them and because of the horrific content there. And you know, I could say, man, well, I'm free in Christ. Like, I'm not going out and doing this stuff. Like, it's not causing me. But I know, I know that stuff, like, it, it harms it harms my, the road that I'm on to be able to share the gospel with other people. It sets up roadblocks for me. And so I'll gladly give it up. And just so we are on the same page, because sometimes we can think, well, I need to be relevant with other people. Like what I'm going to talk to my coworkers about if I don't, can't talk about the show. Guys, just being caught up on the latest show is probably the least effective plan for evangelism of all time. Like it is the least relevant thing you could possibly offer to somebody. They don't need to hear another person who just knows what's going on in that show. Okay, so you can gladly give it up and your neighbors are actually going to be okay. Like we can gladly give up the things that would cause us to sin in how we date. Okay, so you're, you're dating somebody or you're considering the prospect of dating someone. Uh, look, you may be able to go on a camping trip with your boyfriend or girlfriend and not sexually sin with each other. Honestly, I highly doubt it, but I'm going to say, like, you may be able to do that. The Proverbs would actually say, can a man scoop hot coals on his lap and not be burned? Okay, I'll let you go and exegete that for yourself later. But, but sure, sure, you could, say, you could say, well, I'm not going to sin. I'm not, and we're not doing something. We're not in sin. But the question is, the question is, what would a non-believer assume about your relationship? Are your actions beyond reproach? Are you seeking to honor your girlfriend? To not put any possible questions about what your life is like and what her life is like? Are you thinking, how can I live for the glory of God and the good of my neighbor? How can I give up willingly things that maybe I could do but for the sake of the gospel, I'll give that up. And how we use money. There, there, are, there are all kinds of things that we can buy that it would not be a sin in and of itself to buy. But we should ask ourselves, will, will, will myself owning this, if I own this, could it set up a roadblock for somebody? Like, would people, would people still, would I still be able to go and approach somebody and just talk to them about Jesus and what he's done? Would I make myself kind of unapproachable when I put myself in that category? In the way, in the way we dress, in all things of life, we consider not just, do I want to do this? Does it make me feel good? But man, my joy is in knowing Jesus and other people have to know him. And so how, how can I live for the glory of God and for the good of of my neighbors. Paul says it this way, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. There are people for whom Christ has died who have not yet heard the gospel. Some of them are 7,500 miles away in an unreached people group. And there are people in this church called to go there. And some of them are our next door neighbors. And some of them are maybe some of us sitting in this room right now, trusting, trusting in the way we live that we're better than other people, not trusting wholly in what Jesus has done. 
but he has saved us to be sent out to them and to tell them the good news of what Jesus has done. And man, we have to think of Jesus. Christ was rich. Every single thing in the universe is his. But he became poor for our sake. He was all-powerful. But to sympathize with us, he became weak. Christ never had to experience hunger or thirst or pain. But he chose to do that, to experience all of those things for you. The author of all life gave up his life for you. So that we, the redeemed of Christ, must say, Christ gave up everything for me. I I will give every ounce of strength I have, every fiber of my freedom, every dollar I earn, every breath that I have, I want to become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. And so Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. And you've heard that verse, but you know that's what he's talking about. Whether it's to Jews or to Greeks, to any people. Now, in talking about Christian liberty, I want to make sure we make this clear. You are the people of God and you have the word of God and you have his Holy Spirit inside of you. And so don't you dare use your freedom to sin. If you, don't, if you don't like that tone, you need to read the book of Romans. We have been sin, we have been freed from sin that we may not sin anymore. And yes, there is grace in Jesus Christ. But how, why would we want to go back to the filth of our sin? Lord, keep us from that, please. We don't use our Christian freedom for sin. But we use our freedom to say, Christ loved me like this, oh, I'll give up anything. Okay, I'll, I'll, pick up, I'll pick up something. Yeah, I'll give my money. It's not my own. Everything in my life is for him. In church, I was thinking this week about, what is this for me? Um, and things aren't necessarily, necessarily sinful, but uh, they're, they're hard. I don't want to go near them. Uh, and for me, one of the things can be just the smell of cigarette smoke. I don't, I don't really like it. Um, doesn't smell great to me. Or weed, which is everywhere in carp now. Um, and so, like, I don't like those things. And I want to avoid, I want to avoid those places. But man, the Lord, I just felt like the Lord spoke to me. You know what, Travis? When you were dead in your sins, when you were trying to keep you were, you were trying to please me by showing me your religious resume. Man, your work smelled like cigarette smoke to me. But I came near to you. And I saved you. And I didn't just walk the other way. And I didn't just grumble and mumble about what you smelled like. I came near to you. Church, that's what God has done for us. And he said, now here's freedom. How can we, the beloved of Christ who have been loved like that, run from the world? How can we say, you need to do 
yeah, believe the gospel and do this to others. So let's use our Christian freedom for the, for the good of our neighbors, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, if any of us, if any of us had to present you an offering that we might be saved, that you might be pleased enough with us, none of us would have a shot in this room. But you gave us your son in our place. And so God, we want to be motivated by the grace that you've given us. Would we say from the depths of our being, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel? And Lord, even as I, I teach on mission and evangelism, Lord, your solution to our failures after not responding to your grace is more grace. So God, would we know that where we have failed, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is alive in us, empowering us to share your gospel. Thank you that your gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, and capture our hearts. Show us more grace and send us out for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.